Hi everyone, welcome back. So before we jump into today's very interesting topic, a quick update from a few episodes ago. About a month ago, you heard me interview Jordana Leibowitz and Kathy Kaser, the authors of the book, To Look a Nazi in the Eye. That was episode 30. The book is about Jordana's experience as a spectator in the 2015 trial of Oscar Grenig, an SS officer accused of complicity in the murder of Jews at Auschwitz. He was found guilty and sentenced to four years in prison, despite his advanced age and ill health at the time. He spent the last couple of years appealing that prison sentence and requesting a pardon from the German government, all to no avail. But he still had not yet begun his prison term. Well, this week, the issue resolved itself. Oscar Grenning, whom the press labeled the bookkeeper of Auschwitz, died a few days ago at the age of 96. So with that... On to today's episode. When we Americans think of the phrase, the British are coming, we think of Paul Revere's famous midnight ride from Boston to warn the colonists of the impending attack by the notorious Redcoats an act that led to our revolution against the monarchy and 242 years later to the election of Donald Trump. Yeah, thanks Paul. But for the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine during the First World War, the idea of the British coming seemed to conjure up the realization of the great Zionist dream, the creation of the long hoped for Jewish homeland. Playing high politics in the messy geopolitical quagmire of global war the Zionist leaders seized the opportunity of the collapsing Ottoman Empire and the advancing British one to ally themselves with the West in a bid to secure the promise of a territorial homeland in Palestine. They succeeded. Just over 100 years ago, in November 1917, the British government issued the Balfour Declaration, a short 68-word letter expressing the British Empire's support for the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. It's one of the foundational documents of modern Israel, and one of the great achievements of Theodore Herzl's political Zionism. Its importance to Israel, and to today's Middle East, cannot be understated, but it also can't be called completely positive. And that's because while it represents the first international recognition of the Zionist movement's goals, it also represents the resulting morass of conflict in Palestine between the three major players after the war. The British, the Jews, and the Arabs. Britain's effort during the war was the beginning of a 30-year rule in control of Palestine, one that ended with the declaration of the State of Israel in 1948. We'll be talking about the Balfour Declaration this episode and the next, well, mostly the next, how it came about, what it said, what it didn't say, what its impact was. But today we'll be looking at how the British got involved in Palestine in the first place and asking the question, if they made promises to the Jews during the war, did they also make conflicting promises to others? The answer is yes. They did. It's a crucial bit of Israeli history. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. By the 20th century, Jerusalem had been conquered, depending on how you want to count things, 42 times in its history, or 43 if you count the influx of birthright participants in the summer. In 1917, the British Empire became the latest victors. 
But instead of tearing Jerusalem apart, the British were determined to build. Because of all the European powers who had an interest in this part of the world, the British Empire had been the most intensely absorbed in Palestine. Since the early 1800s, Britain had been abuzz with an immense enthusiasm for all things biblical. An explosion of intellectual study into the Bible fed a huge appetite to connect with the Holy Land and its ancient relics and sacred sites. In 1839, Britain became the first Western power to establish a consulate in Jerusalem. It streamlined the process for Western Christians to turbocharge their fervent interest in finding shards of pottery, slabs of stone, and degraded bits of text that would confirm the authenticity of the Bible. The British Palestine Exploration Fund was founded in 1865 as the first organization in the world dedicated to the scientific study of Palestine, explicitly outside the realm of religious inquiry. Things like its history, geology, geography, culture, it still exists today. And it wasn't just the Bible that aroused the empire's interest, but also the Middle East's growing strategic importance. Extensive archaeological research was also useful cover for creating detailed maps of the region, and for building networks of contacts amongst local Arabs and their Ottoman rulers. Between some spectacular archaeological finds and the global fame of British characters like T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, Britain was firmly embedded in and highly experienced with Palestine and its society, including the growing Jewish population. With respect to the Jews, Britain had a bit of a different relationship than what we've seen in the rest of Europe, that anti-Semitism that formed the roots of our Zionist tree. For one thing, the terrible and violent persecution that Jews experienced in Europe in the 18 and 1900s had last been seen in England all the way back in the year 1290, when England's few thousand Jews were expelled. Oliver Cromwell allowed the Jews back in in the 1650s, and the next couple hundred years saw steady progress in Jewish emancipation, economic prosperity, assimilation as English citizens, and even political power. Most famously, Benjamin Disraeli, who had been born Jewish but converted to Christianity, served as prime minister in the 1870s and 1880s. Still, there were occasional anti-Semitic incidents and social tensions, especially as persecution in Russia led to tens of thousands of poor Jews immigrating to Britain. And there was an ever-present antipathy toward Jews from the upper crust of British society, politics and business and military, and that classic sense of seeing the Jews as the other. And so while anti-Semitism was definitely a feature of British society, especially at the elite level, also present was its opposite, philo-Semitism, or love of the Jews. Philo-Semitism manifested sometimes as genuine respect, sometimes as condescension and begrudging tolerance, but it also manifested itself in the particular Christian attraction to Jerusalem and the Holy Land that I mentioned a moment ago. Britain then was less interested in conquering Jerusalem for its own glory than for preserving and protecting the history and inhabitants there. And when it came to the Zionist project, you sometimes had this ironic convergence between the Philo-Semites, who supported the Jews creating a homeland because that was part of Christian prophecy, and the anti-Semites, who were happy to have the Jews move off to Palestine or, you know, anywhere that wasn't Britain. So while the Jewish masses of England were largely indifferent or even hostile to Zionism, which was still a minority movement within the Jewish world then, the upper levels of British politics were well aware of the Zionist project. So the point of my telling you all this is that it meant that Britain was ripe to be responsive to one of the most essential elements of Theodore Herzl's political Zionism tree branch, the need for international support for the creation of a Jewish homeland. Herzl traveled all over Europe attempting to drum up high-level political support. 
His one and only trip to Jerusalem was to intercept the German Kaiser there and request his support, which was non-committal. Britain then seemed like the most natural ally for the Zionist project. And after Herzl's death in 1904, the task was most prominently taken up by one of his most ardent followers, Chaim Weizmann. We really ought to know about him. Chaim Weizmann ranks as one of the all-time most eminent Zionist leaders. He's another Eastern European transplant, this time from a very large family in Belarus, which was then a part of Russia. He left Russia to study chemistry in Germany and went on to patent several chemical discoveries which would prove helpful to the Zionist cause. But the most important fact about him is that he and I share the same birthday. I can only hope that his mother made him a special Chaim cake for his birthday too. That was an inside joke from all the way back at episode 16. But here's Chaim talking about the challenge of Zionism. We have to face a difficult task. We have to bring in a considerable immigration into a small country. We have to prepare possibilities for them to build up a new life. That was Weizmann, who became the first president of the state of Israel, meeting with Harry Truman in Washington in 1948. From a young age, Weizmann was captivated by the ideals of Zionism. In 1898, he attended the Second Zionist Congress, those annual worldwide gatherings of the Zionist movement that were organized by Theodore Herzl. In that Congress and later ones, Weizmann advocated for greater democracy within their movement, for Hebrew cultural literacy, and for the creation of the Jewish National Fund to raise money to buy land. In this way, Weizmann developed his own branch of the Zionist tree, bringing us to four branches now. We have political Zionism, led by Theodor Herzl, cultural Zionism, led by Ahad Ha'am, and labor Zionism, which we've been talking about the last few episodes. Weizmann is most closely aligned with Herzl, but his take on Zionism was to try to blend all the branches together in what became known as synthetic Zionism. The political Zionists thought that the movement first needed an official charter to begin settling larger communities in Palestine. But on the other side, practical Zionists thought that large numbers of Jews had to settle there first and prove their success before a charter would be granted. Weizmann's synthetic Zionism said, you know, we're going to pursue all aspects of the Zionist project at the same time. In other words, he was on board with everyone's tree branch, invested in the political creation of the state, inspired by the idea of the Jewish homeland becoming the spiritual center of Judaism, and supportive of the efforts to establish agricultural communities in Palestine. If he were to look at my Zionist tree, he would take issue with where I have labeled the roots of the tree as anti-Semitism in Eastern and Western Europe. We have never based the Zionist movement on Jewish suffering in Russia or in any other land, he said. The foundation of Zionism was, and continues to be to this day, the yearning of the Jewish people for its homeland, for a national center and a national life. And in the long run, Weizmann would be proven correct. It was essential for the eventual success of the Zionist movement that politics, culture, and the practicalities of nation building all progress at the same time. So, synthetic Zionism, tree branch number four. Where Weizmann was most effective and active in the early years of the 20th century was in Britain. While Vladimir Jabotinsky, from last episode, was leading the efforts to establish a Jewish army in support of the British during World War I, Chaim Weizmann was working the diplomatic front. Both men saw the benefit of having the Jews fight on the side of the Allies, and so, increasingly, did Britain. So let's turn to World War I, because it was Britain's need to win the war 
that led to its support of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. So you are the British. I mean, let's just pretend. And you're fighting this terrible, horrific war with Germany and in the Middle East with the crumbling Ottoman Empire. And you want to win. And to win, you need as many allies on your side as possible. So in Western Europe, you've got the French, of course. And in Eastern Europe, you have the Russians who are keeping the Germans occupied on that crucial second war front. But you also really want the Americans to come into the war to help out. And you also want to undermine Germany as much as possible. Now, in the Middle East, you've occupied Egypt and the all-important Suez Canal, but between you and the rest of the Ottoman Empire is a crucial buffer zone, Palestine. Palestine is right up against Egypt and super close to the Suez Canal, so it's a major threat there. And also, if you, the British, can take control of Palestine, you'll have made a huge strategic land connection between Egypt, Iraq, and a bit further away, the British Empire's territories in what is today India and Pakistan. So a lot is riding on capturing this strategic territory of Palestine. And who's in Palestine? Well, Jews and Arabs. About 600,000 Arabs and a bit less than 100,000 Jews. But the Jews are crucial because they're everywhere in the world. They're in Britain, in America, Germany, Russia. Because here's another question for you. If you're a Jew in Europe during World War I, do you want Germany to win or to lose? It's a question that seems obvious because we have the hindsight of the Holocaust, as well as our American education that hammered into us how Germany was the enemy back then. But for the Jews of Europe, it wasn't so clear. Jews were patriotic. They were generally loyal to whatever country they called home. That's been true throughout history. Germany was central to the Jewish cultural and philosophical experience. If you were an assimilated European Jew looking to immerse in the highest Jewish intellectual spaces, Germany was your place. Russia, on the other hand, was the enemy. The Tsar was the great nemesis of the Jewish people, his mass oppression, persecution, and violence. And Russia was allied with the likes of Britain and France. So the Jews were not necessarily super excited about helping out Russia's allies and winning the war. So back to you being Britain. You have this idea of trying to game Jewish influence in America, Germany, and Russia. If America's Jews see Britain supporting a major Jewish cause, then they'll tell the American government to get into the war, or at least provide tons of money. And a declaration in support of Zionism might undermine German Jews' support for Germany, since maybe they'll think that Britain is more supportive of the Jewish people than Germany is. So the Balfour Declaration, in light of the war effort, it makes a lot of sense. Promise the Jews something to get them fully on your side, and hopefully they'll convince other Jews to wield influence in their respective countries. Of course, some would argue that this is textbook anti-Semitism. Britain's leaders were under the anti-Semitic assumption that Jews control world governments and global finance. They thought that they were cleverly manipulating the Jews to wield way more power than, of course, the Jews actually did. Historians have been arguing for decades about how much the Balfour Declaration was motivated by this kind of anti-Semitic attitude. So the war effort, Britain's desperation to end this catastrophic conflict, was a major reason for Balfour. But so too was the fact that the Zionist project's goal to create a Jewish homeland fit into ideologies across the British political spectrum. In an article last year in Smithsonian Magazine, 
Writer Carrie Hagan noted that Zionism made sense in Britain. The empire's imperialists thought that a Jewish homeland would make for a stronger British presence in the Middle East. Christians believed that God's chosen people belonged in Palestine. Anti-Semites liked the idea of Jews living in just one place. And the Zionist leaders knew all this. Chaim Weizmann was particularly successful. His achievement in convincing the British about the value of supporting the Zionist movement is often attributed to his charismatic personality and his intellectual force of will. But he also had an ace up his sleeve, and I really like this nice little story about him. Having arrived in England in the early years of the 1900s to teach chemistry, Weizmann wooed Britain's political class with his natural charisma and socialite lifestyle, becoming friends with all the top leaders. But why would Britain's leaders be interested in this guy anyway? So again, you're Britain, and you're fighting this huge war across the globe. You need a lot of weaponry, especially explosives, to be used in things like tank shells and artillery and naval guns. And these explosives needed something called cordite to work. But by 1915, Britain couldn't produce these shells fast enough to get them to the front, and they were running out, endangering hundreds of thousands of soldiers. The outcry in the press and from politicians caused a huge political crisis. They needed to make more weaponry and fast. Crucial to the making of cordite for these munitions is a chemical called acetone. Now, I don't know anything about acetone, but here's where it all comes together. A certain chemist named Chaim Weizmann invented a way to mass-produce acetone. This brought him to the attention of two major British military leaders, First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, and the Minister of Munitions, David Lloyd George. Weizmann was put in charge of the Admiralty's labs to produce these munitions, and given his importance now to the war effort, had access to all of Britain's top leaders. And that political upheaval around the crisis and the prosecution of the war led to a change in government, in which a new Prime Minister emerged, David Lloyd George. So Chaim Weizmann, top scientist and Zionist leader, now had the sympathetic ear of the Prime Minister of Great Britain and his government. How about that for historical coincidence? Now, something else was happening at the same time that no one knew about. The British were so desperate to win the war that they promised the moon, well, Palestine, to anyone who offered to help them defeat the Ottomans. And so it turns out that in 1915, two years before the Balfour Declaration, the British made a secret deal with the Arabs. That if the Arabs revolted against the Ottomans, Britain would support their efforts to create an independent Arab empire across much of the Middle East, including Palestine. This is the whole story of Lawrence of Arabia, if you've ever seen that movie, which you should. Except wait, that's not all. The next year, 1916, Britain made another deal, also secret at the time, and this time with the French. It was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and it divided up the Middle East into French and British spheres of influence, just as soon as the Ottoman Empire would be defeated, of course. The French would get Syria and Lebanon, the British would get Palestine and Iraq, Jerusalem would be a specially zoned as a kind of international city. So, yeah, Sykes-Picot a year later betrayed the previous agreement with the Arabs, a fact which has poisoned relations between the Arabs and the West for a hundred years now. It's often viewed as the original act of duplicity by the West, a pattern in the view of the Arabs which has continued to this day. 
Whether it's the West's support of friendly dictators, the pursuit of oil, or, of course, support for Israel, Sykes-Picot is seen as the imperial colonialist agreement that robbed the Arabs of their own empire in the Middle East. Getting revenge for Sykes-Picot features in a lot of jihadist propaganda, including that of ISIS. But even with these secret deals in place with the Arabs and the French, the British were still nervous. They wanted to shore up Jewish support. As the fighting intensified in the Middle East and Britain prepared a major offensive in Palestine, Britain's political leaders began working more closely with Chaim Weizmann and the Zionist movement. It was time, many thought, to throw Britain's support behind the Zionist dream. Okay, so that's the whole long wind-up to the Balfour Declaration of 1917, the short policy statement that committed Britain to supporting a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. You can start to see now how the British involvement in Palestine would lead to conflict between the Arabs and the Jews, what with these competing promises that Britain is going to spend the next 30 years trying to balance. And as much as we celebrate the Balfour Declaration as a major founding document of Israel, we'll see next time that it wasn't so straightforward. It came with a lot of qualifications and contradictions, and was, most of all, pretty vague about the whole Jewish national homeland plan. But still, it was a major step forward for the Zionist movement, so we'll talk about that, and more about my birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman, next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good week. Music